Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Mill. We are back. It's hard to believe, but we have come to the end of the first season of the Science Night Podcast. This is it, the season finale. In this episode, I talked to Ben Valentine. He is a very good friend of mine. And full disclosure, this was actually the first interview that I did for this podcast. And as soon as I finished it, I knew that this is probably a good one to end up the first season on. At that point, I wasn't sure what this was going to be, but I knew that this was a strong episode. I have been sitting on this for a long time, and I'm really excited that you finally get to listen to this. We will be on hiatus for the next few months, at least until the new year. Uh, I am going to be coming back with a second season. There are going to be some changes to the format. If you listen to the Halloween episode, I think I want to do some more narrative things like we did on that, but I'm not really sure yet. So if you have any suggestions, go to our email at the website cyanite.com we have an email page and i will take any suggestions you have if you are a scientist and you want to be interviewed on this podcast i would love to talk to you again cyanite.com and go to the email section contact me and i would love to talk to you and without further ado this is the final episode from season one my interview with ben valentine for joining me today, Ben. This is really exciting. I'm getting to reconnect with all my old friends that I, I've met and have dispersed from Vermont and New Hampshire. So this is this is really exciting. I actually haven't talked to you in a long time. No, it's been way too long. And you say dispersed, <laughs> but you meant fled. <laughs> you know, you know, it is what it is, right? Um, so I have a few questions that we'll talk about and maybe we'll get on to some other topics as we are wont to do. But my first question is to uh, uh, ask you, what is it that you find yourself doing right now? Uh, right now, I'm a fundraiser at the University of Florida. First, I'm going to tell you what I think fundraising really is versus I think what the popular perception of that is. And I'll do that really quickly and we can move on. And then the other thing I'm going to do is... is uh, to just tell you sort of why why it's important to me. Does that work? Yeah. Uh, so so fundraising, I think we all sort of default to this idea of you go around like just bothering people, trying to take their money, like a salesperson. Fundraising, we call it development officer because that's actually a better term for what we do. Uh, think of it as a concierge to the philanthropists, but people who maybe don't know that they're philanthropists, right? The difference between a person who gives and a person who doesn't give is a person who gives was asked. Uh, so we go out of our way to find people that have had some kind of experience, uh, a profound experience of some kind with with our university. This is true of all higher education development officers everywhere and really all development officers of all organizations everywhere. Um, and we try to understand them and their experience. And we say, hey, I'm a fundraiser. But right now, I just really want to understand what it is that has made your experience with us great. Uh, when, when there's an opportunity that makes sense, you tell them, well, this is our belief. This is our mission. This is what we're passionate about. It sounds a lot like what you're passionate about. Should we start talking about a potential gift? And that's really what you do. You meet a lot of people. You have to care about them individually as a person and what makes them passionate. Uh, and you have to find, find a match. And no is quite literally the second best answer you can get as a fundraiser uh, getting to know is a, is a wonderful place and if, if you're a good fundraiser and you and you love your craft then uh, everyone leaves feeling better about the other person and the other institution uh, so that's what a development officer does what is kind of the important of have importance of having um, a good development office um, at this institution uh, I, I, just like at any institution i would say 
any academic institution, any institution focused on science, the funding model for science, for better or for worse, uh, is that very large grants make or break scientists and their research programs. Those very large grants come usually from government funding sources, uh, and those go almost exclusively to the best established, uh, most likely to succeed, most easy to defend, big ideas. Often this can sort of be controlled by this, the most powerful, most influential thinkers because they're the, they're the people on the review board in that particular subfield of science. Uh, so what this means is, if that's the gold standard for what makes good science and what makes you as a, as a, as a researcher um, hireable and you know, uh, uh, valuable, uh, how, do, how do you get there? And the only way to really get there is to cobble together a bunch of smaller amounts of funding. Mm -hmm. So smaller amounts of funding can come from fundraising. They can come from a lot of small granting sources, but philanthropy is a huge source of that smaller funding to do all those pilot studies because it takes a lot of pilot data before you can even begin to think about applying for those big major grants that make it and define a career. Sure. So philanthropy isn't usually the source of the, you know, dr the driver behind these mega movements. It's more about how do we get there in the first place. Uh, how much of your work is dealing with people who have a relationship with your institution and how much uh, is, is kind of finding new uh, sources for funding? Uh, so if you're focused on individuals who want to make philanthropic gifts, uh, that anyone with the person has to have a connection, right? You can't, you can't twist somebody's arm into giving a, a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or $10,000. It just doesn't, doesn't happen. There's, there's no way either they care either they're passionate, either it matters to them or it doesn't. And really your job uh, is to find those people wherever they may be, whether or not it's because they're alumni and they have a sense of loyalty. Uh, it's, it's almost always driven by gratitude of some kind. I am where I am today because of this institution. This institution was key for reasons A, B, and C. For alumni, that very often has to do with the fact that without that training, that expert training and those mentors and all those, their, their, net, their early network, they would not have enjoyed the professional success that they had today. That's usually how the story goes. I work on the, on the hospital side. So another piece of that we explore is grateful patients. And which, is, and that's, you know, I think a lot of people are going to react instantly to that as like, oh my gosh, you approach sick people <laughs> and take their money. And there is a very understandable, you know, intuitively it doesn't, it doesn't seem like something that makes a lot of sense, but I, I, I thought about it very carefully before I, before I took the job on that side of, of academic fundraising. Uh, and, I, and I think it's just, I think it's best summed up by this simple idea. When you are a patient, you have no power, right? You don't have agency. Who makes the decisions for you? Often the disease is making the decisions for you. The doctor and the medical institution are often making the decisions for you. Very often your own family members may be making your decisions for you. Um, you don't get to control your own life. And if you've, if you've just become that patient, that's not quite the same thing as being a person. And for some people, there's a million ways to become a person again. You know, maybe they start a podcast or take up a musical instrument or whatever, right? But for some people, philanthropy is the right way for them to transition back into being a person with agency and not just a patient. Uh, so I really, uh, and I've, I've experienced this, I've had it confirmed to me over and over again through my interactions, the people that say, you know, you know, what you say makes sense to me, you know, in terms of giving a gift, those people really are motivated by this idea of being able to act back, uh, not just be a recipient. It's important to them emotionally and, and they know they're making a difference. We make sure they know they're making a difference. Yeah. You uh, know, that's a, that's an interesting way to think about it as uh, this, this act could be something that kind of gives agency back to the patient and, and can be, seen as part of like the holistic experience uh, uh, with with healing. And it's something I think we probably just kind of disregard as like, oh, you know, these wealthy people are going to be giving this money as part of an ego thing. But, you know, I, I've never considered it that way. And that is, that's, that's kind of like a, um, 
a patient-centered model for giving. It's really great. I find it deeply emotionally satisfying. I love my work. I'm convinced that I create good. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, there are problems with philanthropy as a model for, um, uh, for society. Like, you know, there's, there's a bigger critique there. Like, we can't, we can't just take money away from government, put it in individuals' hands, and expect individuals through philanthropy to power all the things that need doing. But as far as, you know, it is philanthropy good. You know, philanthropy is absolutely good. And it's, sure. um, so within the system that we have, I, I, it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful experience for all involved. Oh, that sounds really great. And I think we could probably know, knowing the two of us, we could probably have a much longer and deeper and more controversial uh, discussion about <laughs> the system. Um, uh, but that might be something for like season two or three or for yeah, the speed. We'll just, we'll just wait till, uh, till your audience is down to like you and your, your cat (laughs) play that on loop and you can rock back and forth in the corner. Sure. So, um, knowing you, I know that you did not start off doing this position. So why don't you talk a little bit about, um, what you did, uh, before this position back when I was getting to know you. Yeah. Yeah. So once upon a time, I was a biological anthropologist. So anthropology in general, at the broadest sense, study of humankind, right? Through as many different lenses as possible. You can study different aspects of humanity uh, through different scientific tools. What makes people people, right? You're always trying to answer the question, what makes people people and why? (laughs) Um, So I liked it, honestly, just because, probably just because of childhood exposure. Uh, Probably just because of a fascination with uh, paleontology and, and fossils and that sort of thing. Um, I, I was back when the Discovery Channel was actually good. I would um, I would watch a lot of Human Origins specials, and uh, I just I just knew that the story of how the species became was the most fascinating story. Hmm. Now, and was that, there a specific was there a specific person or program or uh, kind of like yeah, definitely. Definitely. Effort that got you interested in this? Absolutely. Um, there's a pseudoscientist, <laughs> uh, Desmond Morris. Yeah, uh, you know he. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's not considered a pseudoscientist, but he, he's he's definitely considered a, a biological determinist. I'm not even sure if he's still alive or still doing stuff. Mm-hmm. He's he's not taken seriously within. Uh, the science, the anthropological scientific community. But for me, I saw especially he did a series of specials on the Discovery Channel back then. It was good, or maybe it was TLC. I don't know. I, they were they both used to be good. And uh, and and he was saying all these complex social phenomena are really just manifestations of deep seated underlying biological evolutionary facts of our existence. Right. So, for example. Um, uh, red the tendency of all human uh, women in particular to paint their lips with colors like red uh, he was saying that it was it was emulating or heightening sort of the the red flush of arousal uh, mm-hmm. and, and and was um, uh, comparable to like you know the what the baboon buttocks and, and sexual organs flaring red when it's time to mate like that kind of thing mm-hmm. so well, he'd look at everything. He'd look at just artifacts, art, uh, architecture, uh, symbols that we use in folk culture. Everything was always down. Could it be explained ultimately? Okay. So without dragging this on, it's <laughs> once you really start understanding the nuances and complexities, once you actually devote any any time to a serious study of anthropology, you realize that that explanation falls short in so many ways it's it's just never good enough but it was captivating to me as a young man and even even into my early 20s before i'd I'd had almost no anthropological courses just i think two as an undergrad and i trained to be in telecommunications uh so i was gonna go be like the next tom brokaw or something like that Uh, this could be this could be that that platform that gets you. All right, yeah, I I don't have to let that dream go, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, long story short, I was like, wow, I got this degree in something that I was never really passionate about, 
um, because I thought it would be this ego serving job that would be kind of fun. And then I'm like, as soon as I got into it, I said, nah, screw that. That was dumb. <laughs> uh, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, I had scholarships. I didn't have to pay for any of it. Uh, and then I became a floral designer for a couple of years because I thought I wanted to start my own business. And then I realized I do like being an entrepreneur in the excitement sense, but that I hate all the risk. Uh, and it's terrifying to think that all your business, that your livelihood comes down to like a few dates during the year. Mm-hmm. And then, and so that's when I really went back into my, like, what do I actually care about? Right. That was my going back to grad school moment, which is the only reason anyone should ever go to grad school is because you're having like this self-reflection. Like, what do I care about? What do I need to do next? Sure. I, I've been, I've heard that, you know, one of the pieces of advice that a lot of undergraduate advisors give on people like kind of considering on going to grad school is just read everything you can possibly read on that subject. And if you find yourself getting bored, um, that might not be, that might (laughs) not be the thing to do. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a, that's a great piece of advice. Um, The other thing is, and I think this is more controversial among, among educators and, and you just, the vast majority of people that come to the university system uh, lack through no fault of their own, the depth of life experience to understand who it is you want to be 10 years from now, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, by the time you're 30, chances are better that you have a slightly better handle on who you want to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but your average 20-year-old just doesn't. There's always exceptions to the rule, uh, but for that reason, on average, I think college students really need to go out and do something, anything at all. Just sure. go go design flower arrangements, or, or you know, go wash dishes in in uh, South Korea. Like I don't know, do do literally anything, and and you're you're gonna be you're gonna have a much better chance at making the right graduate school decision. I I think I'm I'm think I'm finding why we uh, kind of became friends pretty quickly, <laughs> based <laughs> based on that statement alone. No, that's really great. Um, all, all the best, all the best students I ever encountered had some previous life experience, right. and, and it it informed their studies in a way that people who just go straight through the education system that most of those people just don't have. Right? They're not bringing any extra, I don't know, sophistication or just another theoretical lens to look at the data. They're just they're just take they're just receiving knowledge, and received mm. knowledge is useless knowledge. So do you think, and this, this could be a controversial subject too, but do you think that uh, the kind of tradition of, of uh, siloing between the departments and even, you know, kind of at a, a micro level, the different traditions within a single department um, has to do with this kind of getting that terminal degree at a young age before maybe you have a series of lenses to look through something? That's, that's a very interesting question. I think it's, I think, I think the causality is probably the other way around. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's just a historical accident, right? And, and, and people continue to do what they do. There's, there's the, the, the business of running a university, I think just encourages people to specialize, to become unintelligible to others around them um, so that they can then control the handful, the scant resources available to them in, sure. in their, their research area. I think what I think that has done, though, is is create this false. So there's two narratives of science. There's the one that I think has appealed to a lot of people. In it, and, well, you know, I think, well, appeal. We, we can talk about that later, maybe. But I think that, let's just say that I think there's two narratives of science. I think there's the one narrative that science is how we get, how we how we become right. Hmm which is really appealing. And it's why I was drawn to science. It's why I was so excited about Desmond Morris. It's like, Oh God, this guy's right about everything. I want to be right. Cause I'm 20 and being right is everyone likes to be right. Um, and then the other narrative of science, and this is how you tell if you're a real scientist, as far as I'm concerned, but you know, my opinion <laughs> carries a little weight. Uh, you're not really a scientist until what interests you is the investigation. If if you're not concerned about being right, you're concerned about getting better. Mm-hmm. As a real scientist gets excited when their idea is wrong, sure, because yeah. the 
literally, you know, this, this is just science one-on-one, but it, it's, it, it's still not the public perception of science. Public perception of science is how you, how you get to facts. Mm-hmm. It's, but all we, what we're really doing is sorting through as many observations as possible and saying, wrong, 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 wrong. Well, okay, this one, this one's pretty good. And we know, and we're excited about it. And we say, this is, this is right. But what we're not saying is this is right until, until it's not. <laughs> yeah. This is right for now. Real science is this is the best model we have right now. Yeah. You know, I, I often say, uh, and I will continue to say that I, I, the, to me, the most important words in science are, I don't know, because mm-hmm. that is what leads to questioning how something came to be or why something functions in this way. Um, and I, I think that's true kind of to every part of science, you know, um, if, if a theoretical physicist didn't know something, then they wouldn't be a theoretical physicist. They would be a physical historian. Yeah. Um, you know, so <laughs> I think those those words are kind of what drive science and hopefully scientists. But it, it's not necessarily what drive, drives aspiring scientists. Or it's, and it's sure. certainly what I think the public perception of science is. I think the public perception mm-hmm. of science is... Actually, I think it's part of a. I think it's a. It's a. It's a subset of a broader class divide. But that's another political. Yeah, uh, I think there's a reason people dislike the highly educated. (laughs) And you know, part of the reason I wanted to do this particular podcast is I think that if you just have a conversation with somebody involved in science, and they seem approachable because you've heard them talk about their their work in kind of an easier to understand way you know they're not trying to get research funding they're not doing Mm -hmm. a symposium lecture then i think that the science itself becomes a little more approachable if you're not creating this giant pedestal to stand on because you need to get that research grant to keep your lab going or you need to get this publication to get Mm -hmm. on this tenure track position you know, I think all of a sudden everything becomes more approachable and then maybe we get people interested in science because of that inquiry rather than because I want to be deified as the person with the theory named after them. Yeah, and I think that's, I think you're spot on. That's beautiful. We, we need uh, the scientist as, you know, the public, publicly perceived scientist. It, we drastically need to reform that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's happening, I think, right now because of COVID nineteen. We haven't actually needed scientists uh, or understood. We haven't understood how we've needed scientists for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, they used to be celebrated in mass media. Yeah. Uh, and and we all experience it intimately and personally. And now scientists are, you know, now that that's it seems like they've been co opted by certain political parties in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they ha- they haven't saved our bacon recently, yeah. not knowing not in a way that was celebrated across society. Um, that, that may change, that will change in the next several months. Sure. Uh, and I, th- I think um, that version of science is uh, giving all of us something that we need, um, but also being done by regular people, like people who are passionate and who are searching, searchers, sojourners, if you will. Yeah, no, that's great. Why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, what you were working on, what your research kind of focused on when you were working in the biological anthropology field? Yeah, um, so I quickly, after originally being captivated by human origins, I I quickly realized I was going to study what was feasible for me to study (laughs) with the resources that were available to me. Um, And I knew I wanted to use a very sciencey approach so I was using isotopic analysis, right? Uh, so uh, using uh, biological remains, mineralized tissues, like essentially bones and teeth. And in reality, for very, very old things, that just means teeth um, for reasons we don't need to get into. You can look at the chemical structure of something. You can see that there's isotopes, which are different weights of the same element. Uh, and we know that as... Uh, elements move through geological systems as they move through biological systems, right? As you, as they go through the watershed, as they get, as they rain, um, as they go into your plant, the plants that you then eat. Every time the those two different weights of the same element transition to another part of that of that cycle, um, they will, they may or may not, but those that interest us do 
change in different or, or the different weights move differently. So you'll get more of the heavier weighted element or you'll get less or you'll get more of the lighter weighted element, right? There will be some predictable relationship. Now that's all abstract and not very helpful. Just know that there's the 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 proportion of the heavy version of something to the light version of something changes in a way that we can measure and that we can uh, and we can tell or or, or actually, or it changes in a way, or, or it doesn't change, which is also very, very important. I often focus on the way things didn't change. Uh, and we can measure that difference, and we can, we can track it back to its source, uh, whether that was a certain kind of food or a certain geological area, that sort of thing, right? So that was a lot of words to not mm -hmm. very... I, ho so, I hope that, that was approachable. <laughs> no, that's definitely approachable. Um, or it, it can be made approachable for sure. Uh, you know, part of this is going to be like a follow-up deep dive episode and maybe stable isotopes could could be the deep dive that I can go through and, and uh, create an episode on. So I think that's, that's a great uh, kind of springboard. Um, the, the simplest breakdown of it is you are what you eat. Sure. Right. So if you ingest things, your chemical composition will in some way tell you things about the environment that's that's really all you need to know the chemical the isotopic composition lets you know things about the environment that you used to live in mm -hmm. so at, the, at did, the time that the that the that the bone or tooth was formed sure so what what were you specifically looking for kind of using this information this data well for for a long time i was the worst kind of scientist which was uh <laughs> uh i just had a method that i thought was really cool and i was looking for anything like any any uh, many samples that I could mm -hmm. just to apply it because that's another problem. That's, a, that's a, another wrong kind of scientist, right? The scientists who want to be right. There's also scientists that just want to want to do the thing to the stuff, but you have to have a question. You have to have a good question, a question that matters for some reason. And if your question doesn't matter, then, then your work doesn't matter. Uh, so originally I just, and I had a very opportunistic sample uh, to, I was mostly just testing a method. Although I, th I thought I was revealing deep archaeological truths about a mortuary population, a cemetery, a dead, a, you know, a bunch of dead people that had been deposited in a cave in Borneo uh, thousands of years ago. And I was gonna, uh, I thought I was revealing truths about that population, but really I, I didn't, I had, I did not know enough about that group of dead people to ask interesting things about their social organization. <clears throat> I was just looking for differences. I said, I got a hammer and there's a nail and I'm going to hit it. So uh, I successfully hammered the nail. Um, I found what I think may have been some patterns and, you know, it's, that helped maybe have revealed certain groupings within the, the, the population. It, you know, it, it was great. That was cool. That was my master's degree. Um, I learned a method. And often a master's degree is about learning a method. Sure. But you got to take your PhD a little more seriously. Um, and I got passionate about the Indus civilization for two reasons. Um, it's urbanization is clearly a very important phenomenon and for understanding it and how it impacts our lives today and how it's been impacting our lives for, for thousands of years. So the Indus civilizations in South Asia uh, was in South Asia, you know, India centered around the border between India and Pakistan up into up up into Afghanistan, and uh, they they came together during these times of climatic change and built these incredible cities and had most sophisticated craft technology of all their peers, including the Egyptians and, and Babylon, uh, uh, Mesopotamians. But we know very little about them, which is the other the other part of it, right? So I know that they're super important. We all know they're super important to understanding mm -hmm. how we come together in cities and, and especially during times of climatic change, uh, but. We don't. We haven't deciphered their language. Right? They have a written language, and no one's managed to decipher it yet. So that I was like, oh well, I've got a tool that tells us stuff that we don't need words that help us, even when we don't have the language. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I was specifically interested in tracking mobility. And I thought, wow, what's more important in understanding urbanization than tracking the movement of individuals? Right? The congregation of individuals. Where are they coming from? Why are they coming from those areas? Does does where they're coming from tell us something about what what, what resources are there, what, what food sources are there? Like, what's what about their origins helps us understand why they came together in the first place? Mm -hmm. Right? Why were they drawn to a city? So you know, I I went at that for a few years, and I think I came up with some interesting results. But 
it was an isolated study and it was it kind of flew in the face of what people, some people thought of what everybody thought about, about the cemeteries. Um, so I spent, uh, I spent a few years throwing myself at that, at that problem. It was, it was exciting. Cool. Yeah. Great. You, uh, you've gotten to the point where you've reached your PhD. You, you are a terminal student at this point, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It felt like in more ways than one sometimes. PhD is a grueling process. Yeah. No one no one should do it unless they they really have a sense of purpose. <clears throat> so you get to the end of this really long, really difficult road. You know, you go through you go through the entirety of graduate school, you have been hooded. What is that feeling? Is it a feeling of relief, accomplishment, <laughs> dread, all? You know, I I think we all as we're going through it, we imagine it's going to be this more uh, supernova type experience. And maybe it is for some people, but for me and for most of the people I knew, the most the most profound uh, emotion that goes along with it is relief. Mm-hmm. Um, it's over, a sense you can move on and really do the things now. Now you're a big boy. I think I think the I think the problem is, uh, for the vast majority of grad students, you're taught you're a big boy now. You can go do science now. You can make a living doing science now, and and that's actually not true. Sure. That's that's sort of the big, the big hoodwink of it all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're not really a player yet. You're just a new kind of infant. You think you've become this thing. And it's like literally all those years of your life were spent so that you could just be at the bottom of this new kind of totem pole with rules that you didn't really, that you probably didn't completely understand as a graduate student. Right. So when I got to know you, uh, you uh, you were no longer a student. You were an instructor. I believe you were actually a postdoc at that point. Yeah, yeah. Postdoc, postdoctorate, which is this sort of interim position mm-hmm. that you, you keeps you keeps you in the game, as presumably you're seeking a uh, a permanent research and or teaching position at a university where they're, where they're going to where the university has said you're valuable we're going to invest in you you can start building your life here right because you know presumably you want to have like a, a home and a family or, or, or something you want to have at least a place to put your cat <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be almost uh you know if we if we kind of put the medical framework on it would be like a like a first year resident or or maybe just like a residency program where you have the degree you have the letters after your name but you still need a little bit more cooking to uh, to get to the finish point. You do, you do. Um, except that uh, you're virtually guaranteed a lucrative professional career on the medical side. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that that is that is far from the truth. Uh, sure. A postdoc is a kind of the institution of of post post-doctoratedom, post-doctoratedness, mm-hmm. <laughs> the health phenomena. And there's another category in this, this, this interim level, um, and that's the adjunct professor, mm-hmm. which is uh, someone who gets paid a, a paltry amount of money to teach individual courses on a contract basis, right? So they can cobble together an income stream by teaching more and more courses. And so the post-doctorate and the adjunct professor are these uh, pseudo-creatures that uh, inhabit academia, and they, um, I think, I think most of them probably thought, "Oh, I can make a living doing this," uh, and and they just, you kind of have to live. Some 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 few people are really lucky or or really good, but it's rarely just about being good. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It's it's a political game, just like any other game. Sure, anything with people is political. All pe- people are political. Um, so it's about social networking and all kinds of things. But the, uh, I inhabit. I was. I was just in that in that transitional state where you where you might still think that this is just like you being the caterpillar and you're going to turn into a butterfly, um, and there's some certainty like you know the, you know the caterpillar is going to turn into a butterfly unless it gets eaten. Mm-hmm. But you you can you can easily be a, you can easily be an academic caterpillar for your entire career, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which means putting your entire life on hold. Yeah, and you did you did quite a bit of instruction. At the point where where I knew you, you were teaching pretty often, and you were teaching some really interesting courses, uh, which I don't think we're going to get into the specifics of. But but you were uh, you, you were definitely um, going a little bit above and beyond as far as like designing courses that at least I wanted to take. Maybe that's what you were you were going for to to try and get James Reed in your classroom. Absolutely, uh, more and more often. Um, <laughs> we knew you far and wide in the community. 
It's just a competition to get James Reed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like in in um, the description of academia that you're giving that, that teaching is not necessarily the way to get past that uh, academic caterpillar uh, situation. Mm-hmm. And... It, it can be. Mm-hmm. It can be. Uh, I, so I've, I've been telling you the story of the researcher. Mm-hmm. There's the other path that is the, the, the focused teacher. And they tend to go to universities are sort of classified as what's considered tier one research schools, which have mm-hmm. large levels of, of grant funding from prestigious institutions, mostly government institutions. And they are really the, the machines that drive all knowledge production uh, just globally, honestly, uh, these tier one research institutions. Uh, and then there's all these others that are really places to create, to give people degrees, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's your local um, the, co- the local college in your community or, or whatever. Uh, so you, so for a lot of people, you, you can succeed as, as an instructor, mm-hmm. as an educator. But the fact of the matter is you have all these institu- institutions creating people with higher, higher degrees, you know, advanced degrees, and they all think they're going to get a job. And I don't know why none of us ever do the math, but there's a, just a tiny handful of these jobs. Mm-hmm. And it is a blood sport. Sure. So competition for these positions. It's just, it's a blood sport. It's brutal, um, which is why politics enter into it so much. So, mm-hmm. so there is both the education track and the research track. If you are hired, it is almost at, at one of these tier one institutions. It is because they think you're a good researcher or they're willing to gamble that you're going to become a good researcher. And uh, they will, and teaching then becomes a liability. It is something that you can be failed on, like something that you can not get tenure because of. But it doesn't matter how amazing your teaching is; it's never going to get you tenure. Sure. And if, if tenure is that is that essentially means no, you can't be fired now. You're here with us for good, um, and it's it's the it's the dream, right? It's the security. It means you actually have some stability in your life. Mm-hmm. So behind like the requirement to be a good or capable instructor there is this like need for self-perpetuation in your research so you need to continue to um work work on on your uh you know your research question your research methods and publish along the way can you talk to us a little bit about the stress associated with with that aspect of academics yeah yes it's often called publish or perish meaning if you don't put out a certain number of reputable articles and by reputable i mean peer reviewed right so other scientists have had to have looked over to your work and approved it and that's we can talk about that that could that could be like three podcast episodes <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to go into the institution of peer review today uh so you have to have keep putting out these these reputable publications a certain number of year to be considered a serious player i mean that's just it's just it's hard. Uh, it, um, you, it takes money. Mm-hmm. It takes um, being in a place in your life where you don't have to take care of other people and make a, a living because you got to sort of like postdocs don't have, don't have a whole lot of money. They usually they're usually they're doing the work of a, of a higher level of an established scientist who has a big grant. who's paying them out of, out of that scientist grant. Mm-hmm. But you just have to get your name on as many publications as possible to essentially prove your your worth. That um, and I don't know, like I'm not sure what to say about it except that it's just like it sounds. Like, in principle, it sounds like a good idea, right? Like obviously, someone should be productive. Like there's nothing. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't sound bad on the face of it, but but because the the standard the standard for success is really more about like how many. Like it's just do more, do more, do more, mm-hmm. and there's so much competition that it kind of drives individuals to like produce at these insane levels where there's no there's no mental health. <laughs> <laughs> there's no like I, it just comes down to really intense competition. I think mm-hmm. that's probably what it really boils down to: really intense competition with a with a fair, with a pretty quantitative metric. Like you just got to do more and more of this. And, uh, and that makes you good. And if you're not good, you're dead. You're just, mm-hmm, you're, mm-hmm. you're not part of the field anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so do you think, do you think that that model where you need to be pretty consistently producing, uh, producing publications damages the science at any point or has the opportunity to? 
you know, I've only ever really thought about how it's bad for individuals at, at length because I was one of those individuals that felt like I'd been sort of tricked. I should, you know, I should have known better, but I, but I was tricked nonetheless. I think that it abs. I know that it encourages sort of like sort of gaming the system. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll scratch back your back, you scratch mine. People just throw their names on other people's papers. But does that necessarily create bad science? Pe- peer review is supposed to be the, the 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 guard between us and bad science. Sure. Uh, what I'll tell you what it does mean. It means that the individual can't pursue. Uh, riskier lines of inquiry, mm-hmm. which is what tenure is supposed to do. It's supposed to free you up to pursue riskier lines of inquiry, to go ask questions that maybe there's not an obvious, obviously important answer, or just an obvious answer. Period. Let's let's go let's go explore the uncharted, the unknown, the wilds. So so yeah, I think we miss out on a lot of unknowns just because of this, this drive to preserve your your career. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds like it's not necessarily damaging to the science. It's limiting. It's narrow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for distilling what I said yeah. in, in a useful way. <laughs> but, it, but it is damaging to the scientist. Uh, absolutely. It's damaging yeah. to the scientist. There's no doubt right. about it. No, that all sounds, you know, like so, it, something that somebody who wants to get into science should be aware of. I, I think, you know, that's all really important to kind of go in eyes wide open and no, yeah. know that just like anything it's it's difficult there's lots of twists and turns and i think um also highlighting that you have a terminal degree but it is not necessarily the terminus of your career is maybe something that academies might not be the best at highlighting you know they they bring you in because they want you to produce for that institution and they don't highlight the the many other things that you could be doing uh like like you're demonstrating you know you're doing you're doing some good for a system that you really care about rather than trying to kind of get to the end goal that um kind of established academia has put forward like a tenured position at a well-funded uh lab or or something like that and and I just want to add one one element to that. Um, what what's I'll try not to dwell on this too mm-hmm. long. I just want to say that I think what's broken about the production of scientists, right? The production of people with advanced degrees. There's two things. One is that there is uh, institutions at the university level uh, make money by producing more degrees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't care what happens after that. So are there jobs waiting for you? Well, the answer is actually yes, but they're not. <laughs> but it's only if you hustle and reinvent yourself, right? Mm. You, you know what you know what researchers know how to train young uh, uh, scientists to do, to do more research. Mm-hmm. That's all they know how to do. You know what they're incentivized to do. What the, what what in fact it ties into their promotions, their ability to get more money and get more security. They're incentivized to produce as many of these people as possible. So what do they do? They produce what they know how to do. They produce mm-hmm. what they know how to produce, which is more scientists. Mm-hmm. So scientists making scientists making scientists. Now we all need to think like scientists, but we need far fewer people who think that they actually need to make a living being scientists. There's just not enough room for them. So there's an incentive creating this huge population boom of people who have the expectation of becoming a scientist, but they just um, there, there's a drive to to produce them, but no drive to use no no reason to use them. Yeah, no, I think I think kind of establishing the gap between the ideal of science or the topic of science and scientific inquiry and the scientific method. And the business of science yep. is is something that there should be a bright line between. And I, and I think that's part of this is if you're making the scientists more approachable, then you can kind of talk about the issue. And I don't think we're going to solve any problems on this podcast. Oh, sure um, we are. <laughs> but I think, you know, if if you have somebody that's thinking about grad school in an idealized way and, and knowing that it is going to be hard and it is going to be difficult and you are going to need to kind of be multifaceted to... They need to know that going in. Yeah. yeah. Before, yeah, but, but, before you even take the uh, uh, an exam to get into grad school. But but I feel like we're putting the burden on the student. The burden okay, shouldn't be sure. the student. 
the burden should be on the institution, right? Because mm -hmm. what do their teachers t teach them to do? Their teachers teach them to be scientists. Why the hell should we have to uh, expect students with this limited set of experiences be their own teachers for all the other skills they're going to need mm -hmm. to become a non-scientist, to, sure. to become a non-researcher? I mean, they're, they're always going to be scientists, but to become a non-researcher. It's almost like we should, uh, or institutions should have like a, almost like a, a freshman seminar, but for people who are considering going to grad school, just like, yeah, we're yeah. going to put you, we're going to put you in with a series of professors, grad students, master students, research assistants, and, you know, we don't want to scare you off, but we want you to know what to expect rather than thinking this is what I'm going to expect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there should be uh, a massive investment in the graduate curriculum, right? So once, so let's say that person wasn't scared away, that aspiring uh, scientist wasn't scared away. They, they, they become, they, they throw themselves into the, into the advanced degree producing system. Someone needs to be there. The institution needs to care. Their professors need to care enough to prioritize teaching them an alternate path, mm -hmm. right? I, I, I love all of you 10 little ducklings that follow me around in my lab. You're all wonderful. And the cold hard truth is only one of you is going to get to have a job like mine. Well, damn it. The responsibility should be on me and I should receive, my institution should care enough to support me, to give me resources and, and to, uh, uh, to promote me based on my ability to care for those other nine people. Like mm -hmm. I should, I should be concerned that I'm just producing people who are going to go out there and flounder and struggle and be unhappy. And when they could, in fact, become some of the most effective people in any number of industries, right? Mm -hmm. A PhD is not, a misconception is that a PhD is a super specialization that makes you incredibly knowledgeable about one very narrow subset of something. And it, while it is true that if you have a PhD, you are incredibly knowledgeable about one narrow subset of something, <laughs> that is not what you are. What you are is the ultimate hustler and the ultimate investigator. You know, you know how to identify problems in a way that other people can't. You know how to reframe a problem in, other, in a way that other people can't. You know how to think about complex systems. You know how to go out and find information from people who uh, maybe aren't experts in your field. You know how to go to other fields and find facts and bring them to bear. PhDs are amazing. Mm -hmm. We need them in all, all industries of all kinds. And there are very few pipelines. There's very, there's very little infrastructure, either at the professorial level or at the institutional level for taking these people who are powerful problem solvers and putting them in all the industries that need them. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's just, you know, that's a huge failing, a huge failing of the institution. Sure. We're only counting for one out of our 10 ducklings. <laughs> right. And the other nine are going to go on to struggle. And the, and so many of them, we, we internalize it and we think it's our fault and we failed. I, I didn't for long. I'm, I'm, I was pretty good at turning the tables and getting angry and drunk pretty quickly. Uh, but the, uh, <laughs> It's, it's, it takes a real toll on a lot of people's mental health. And, and for me, it was a conflict between being able to do my job well and, and take care of my own family. Uh, in the end, I picked my family. Um, sure. obviously. Do you think part of this is the, the divide between industry and academics, or at uh, least the perceived differences between the two? I mean, <laughs> academics is just another industry. It, sure. It, our product is just is students and papers so that we can earn big government dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just another industry with other rules. I don't know. I'm not sure I have an intelligent answer to that. I think that's yeah. a great, helpful question, and I, I can't bring a lot to bear. That might be one of those unanswerable questions, too, right? Like, Oh, I bet some. I, I'm sure somebody's done a PhD on it and give you a very intelligent you know, <laughs> The next person you have on should tell you about, uh, should, should answer that question. There we go. That'll be the setup for the next one. So <laughs> the last kind of segment I want to talk about, because, you know, you, you've talked about science and academics, and it seems there's a fair amount of stress associated with that, right? Oh, yeah. So what are some of the ways that you have found to kind of manage that or continue to manage that because your job now is, is demanding in different ways? So there's, there's got to be stress associated with that. Yeah. What, are some, what are some tips? What are, if you want to give some aspiring graduate students or aspiring students a toolbox to kind of manage those things, what are, what are some things that you can look at? Uh, be, more, be more than your work. 
It's as easy as that. Now, it's also as hard as that because uh, when your work requires so much of you, <clears throat> um, what's left over? Sure. Right? What, what's left over to be more than your work? You have to have money, time. You have to have resources to be more than your work. But to the, to the best of your ability, find something to love that loves you back. Um, science is, scientific thinking is the most important thing any of us can, can do. And I'm grateful to all the researchers that we have. And I love that my career empowers those researchers. But science never loves you back. Find some support system. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway. Because you're right. You know, we, we tend to personify science and make it seem like a thinking, feeling thing. But it's not that. It, it is, you know, unyielding in, in its <laughs> <laughs> lack yeah. of capacity to care. And this, I think this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. I like how you've, uh, how you've put it. Uh, that there's science as being right, then science is a tool. Mm-hmm. Science is not an end goal. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not this final state of acquisition. It's not, you haven't, you haven't become the authoritative right figure that um, should be respected and held above other kinds of people. All people should be using scientific thinking to accomplish something that matters. Science cannot tell you what matters. Hmm. It can't. Yeah. Other areas of your life have to tell you what matters. Science helps you get there. Uh, So as long as we as a society can set admirable goals, and as long as we as a society can can retain scientific expertise, then we will always be able to get to those admirable, achieve those admirable goals better than any other method. It's the most reproducible way to to solve your problem, to do it over and over again for as many people in, in society as possible. Uh, you know, that's what, that's what science get, it gets us there, but it is not the reason it is not the person. It is not this thing. It is not this in state. It is a tool like any other. So if you're not using science or using scientific thinking, then you're, then you're, you don't really get the point. And that does it for season one of the science night podcast. I want to thank Ben for talking with me. I want to thank the thousands of birds that can be heard during this recording. I was going to put a music track down, but I thought that kind kind of sounds nice, and and that's what we're we're going for something that just sounds nice, right? Obviously, thank you to all of the scientists that sat down and decided. You know, I I think I'll give him a shot. I'll let him interview me. I'm sure this won't ruin my career. And to this date, I don't think any careers were ruined by this podcast. And that's really something I can hang my hat on, I feel. I will be back at some point in the new year. I don't know when, but when the calendar turns to 2021... Look to your podcast feed and you may see a new episode of the Science Night Podcast. Until then, have a great night.